Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Lionel Barber, former editor of the Financial Times and co-host of Prospect's brand new Media Confidential Podcast. In this episode of the Prospect Podcast, I had the privilege to venture inside the Bank of England, the old lady of Threadneedle Street, home to the bank since 1794. I sat down with Andrew Bailey in the Governor's office, overlooking the garden, and in our brief and frank conversation, we covered the challenges he's faced over recent years as the nation has had to deal with the cost of living crisis. Thank you for giving me some time. Pleasure. I thought a lot about how to start this interview and I came to the conclusion that while you're not looking for the sympathy vote, uh, you have been Governor of the Bank of England during an extraordinarily difficult period. External shocks, war in Ukraine, pandemic, uh, energy shock and the return of inflation and then half flying blind on data. So. How do you see the challenges? Are we in a new period? And do you feel that occasionally overwhelmed? Well, I do wonder about my sense of timing. I started my term and the country went into lockdown. I think it was on the second day. So that was a good start. And we had a financial market crisis on the third day. And we had to do an emergency monetary policy committee meeting on the fourth day. So it started with good timing. And yes, as you say, we've had very big shocks since then, first of all, I mean, I think, look, in terms of doing the job, you have to be prepared to deal with what comes your way. You can't say, uh, well, you know, let me pick and choose the, the conditions. I mean, I do think we're in an interesting period. Christine Lagarde made a speech in Jackson Hall a couple of weeks ago where she did make the point that, you know, we have to be, we have to accept in a way that we're now living and operating in a world where there are bigger shocks and we have to deal with those and we have to be prepared to deal with them and I think she's right on that point at the moment you know we have to be prepared whatever comes next that there could be further you know large shocks that we don't know about at the moment the unknown unknowns yeah yeah at the moment what do you think they might be is it financial stability well I think clearly there are more shocks coming out of what was this sort of rather loose term, the geopolitical world. I mean, I think clearly we're living in a world with less stable relations. Um, let's face it, if, you know, if you'd asked me at the beginning of my term, what probability do you put on there being the biggest war in Europe since the Second World War, 
during your term, I'd have probably given it a pretty low probability at that point in time, but it's happened. So I think the geopolitical world is more unstable, and it has clearly it has very substantial economic consequences. No question about that. And we we're seeing those unfold, but it, you know it's still a, it's still something that is unfolding as. But we, it's a conscious uncoupling, if you like, between the U.S. and China. It's not deglobalization, terrible word, but clearly a, a, a greater emphasis on national sovereignty technological superiority well there's greater economic fragmentation going on i think that's 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 certainly true now i think some of that is because what one of the consequences of these shocks starting with covid of course is that we have come to realize that we were depending upon things happening in supply chains which we assumed would happen automatically always just when we wanted them to happen which haven't happened and then the second thing is there's more choice in us in, in in the loosest sense of the term through sort of geopolitical relations and through through relations between countries that is causing people to look again at patterns of trade about to, to what degree you know, they can rely on open trade and so yes those things are affecting us and then i think i mean i'm always very careful what responsibilities we have in the area of climate change but i have to say that one thing that I do think is that we are seeing some aspects of it now affecting uh, the global economy. I don't think you can you can get away from the fact that there is a sense of a greater fragility of food supply caused by climatic conditions. Sadly, there could well be more of that. Let me just ask you briefly about uh, monetary policy. Hmm. Um, that is obviously the traditional tool for tackling inflation. Do you yeah. think we're putting too much weight on monetary policy? Do we expect too much of it? Well, I think in the, you know, in the immediate response has to come from monetary policy. That's, that's our job. I think we always have to look at what I call the underlying drivers of it. It's quite interesting, actually, looking at that debate and how it's evolved over the last two or three years. One of the things I do try to do is, is, is in a sense, fairly obviously, I think we need to understand the underlying causes of this. You know, what is it in the economy and in the global economy that is causing this to happen? Because that's, to my mind, a better way of them you know, working out how to tackle it. I regret the fact that in some, in some times that gets pre- presented as, well, he's blaming this or blaming that. I'm not blaming anything, actually, in that sense. I'm, I think it's important that we get to the bottom of, of, of what the drivers are. Now, in the short run, the response, the response has to come from monetary policy. But in the long, medium to long term, I think it you know, often involves a broader set of issues in terms of, of choices and policies that go beyond the Bank of England's responsibility mm-hmm. in terms of you know, structural issues that, are, that can be driving these things. But in the first instance, it, no, we have to respond. Can we just revisit a, a quite difficult period um, for the bank in late 21 when the yeah. bank decided not to move, not to raise interest rates? And... You've obviously been quite heavily criticised yeah. for that. I mean, what was the problem? Was it groupthink, or were you worried about stifling an incipient recovery post-pandemic? When I look back on it, I, I can pick out, I think, three very big shocks, one of which, of course, at, in, at the end of 21 hadn't happened by that stage, which was the Ukrainian war. So let's put that to one side. Coming out of COVID, we saw what tends to get called the sort of the global supply chain shock, and that was obviously by nature global. It reflected the fact that globally there had been a shift in the mix of demand from services to goods, which had put pressure on supply chains because goods are more traded than services. That caused an inflationary upturn. 
you know, it looked like a supply shock. It looked like a temporary supply shock at the time as, as the world economy readjusted and we came out of COVID. And as we were told with, with, with temporary supply shocks, if you think that the th thing is not going to go on beyond the sort of the transmission period of monetary policy, then the, you know, the, the sensible thing to do is to accommodate the first round effects and head off the second round effects. If that had been the only shock that we had experienced, and looking back on it now, now we can actually see the profile of the thing because it's wound its way through now, actually. It's, it's largely done now. It actually does look transient. That wasn't the problem. The problem, I think, was that two other shocks then came along very quickly with no sort of air gap between them. One, as I said, was the war. Let's put that to one side for this question. But the other one was domestic. And, and this is the challenging one to your question. And that is the supply of labour, particularly, yeah. uh, in the economy. I think the furlough scheme was very successful, really, in terms mm. of the response to COVID and the need for a response to mm. COVID that protected, particularly, I think... You know, those in the lower paid end of the economy who needed economic protection. During 2021, bear in mind that the furlough scheme ended at the close of September that year, up to the end of September, I think around a million jobs were on the furlough scheme right up to the last day of the furlough scheme. And so the big question for us going through that year was what was going to be the consequence and response to the end of the furlough scheme. And it's quite interesting, this question, people ask me, you know, I get a lot of you know, critical remarks about our forecasting. So in every, every quarterly monetary policy report, we publish an, an, an annex which compares our forecast to other people's forecasts in the, in the sort of the outside world, in the market and the outside world. And a I, 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 number of times I've been back and looked at the 2021 reports, and particularly on the unemployment forecasts. And the interesting thing is, I mean, we were forecasting an increase in unemployment. In the middle of that year, our forecasts were below the, the whole of the range of outside forecasts. And we were always below the average level of the average forecast. So, you know, I, I, I conclude from that, look, we were all in it um, in terms of this question. And, and it wasn't unreasonable to think at the time and to be concerned that there was going to be a quite substantial increase in unemployment and negative reaction to the end of the, end of the furlough scheme. If, if you look back now with the benefit of hindsight, yes, that's, that's the thing that yeah, we, we, we got wrong. The furlough scheme ended and the, the people who were on the furlough scheme got absorbed back into the labour force. And, of course, we now know that the overall supply of labour reduced. And now, if you come back to you know, the, the period you were talking about, which is around November 2021, obviously the labour labor market data comes out with a lag. So it's at that point that I made a, I know I made a speech and some remarks saying, I think, you know, which was pretty much signaling that rates were going to have to go up. And we were still waiting to see the data to say, what, are, you know, what is happening? And so, you know, yes, we were, there was, a, I think, a very awkward period around November, December that year, well, October to December, where, you know, we were trying to work out what was going on. We were beginning to see the data. The data were not conforming what we thought would happen. And, you know, that was a difficult period. Okay, so I'm sympathetic to an awful lot of what you've said. I think the extra criticism, which is more mm. one of communication and perhaps excessive caution, is that yeah. you continued to talk dovishly about the direction of monetary policy and interest rates, which may have made it therefore necessary to do even more to catch up. Do you see what I mean? It reduced the impact 
you, you might have got your communication wrong as well. Do you accept that? We moved ahead of pretty much every other major, well, actually every other major central bank. I remember when I said to fellow governors that we were going to move, you know, some of them looked a bit surprised at me and said, are you sure this is the right thing to do? There were a number who, I remember, said, you know, interesting. <laughs> That's a big word in central banking terms. I think for us it was a period. We were quite unsure at the start as to where this was, was going to lead to. And maybe that had some conditioning effect on our communication. And do you think the UK, it's a bit like a cork bobbing on the sea, isn't it? Well, I mean, obviously, we're, you know, we're an open economy in a world of global shocks at the moment. Um, I'm not sure I'd use the, the, the cork comparison, but we are an open, you know, we are a more open economy than a number of others. And so we are, we are hit by these shocks. Plus, we've had this domestic labour market story, which actually has been quite a bit more pronounced than anybody else has had. But that's why I go back to this point about monetary policy, that you're not in the 1970s, 80s. We're much more an open economy. And, which we haven't talked about, there is a Brexit effect, isn't there? Look, I'm always very careful about Brexit um, because I'm a public official. Please don't do an omerta on me. Try not to. So, look, I don't take a position on Brexit per se. What I do say, however, and I've said a number of times and I'll say it again, is that if you reduce the openness of an economy in the short run it will have a negative effect on productivity it will have a negative and it will have a negative effect on on growth you know you don't need to sort of take my word for it you can go back to adam smith and david ricardo in the longer run you know, those those trading relationships you know adjust in the real economy and we build new trading relationships and in the longer run you adjust for it but in the short but there's a short run there's a yeah there's a there's a misalignment and I, if people say, well, you know, that means he's obviously a Remainer, I will say, no, no, uh, I take no position. But I do feel I have, a, you know, I have a responsibility to point out the economics, and I do. You do. <laughs> and your predecessor pointed out those economic potential risks before the referendum and actually yeah. on, on Scotland on the independence. Yeah. Now, I, you know, I will, I will, I will be very clear. I, the Bank of England is not a Remainer organisation. It's not a Brexiteer organisation. I mean, it's not, that's our job is to be neutral. Do you think that there's a re-rating of Britain post-Brexit, post these shocks? Or do you take a more optimistic view? Because I think a lot of international audience uh, people want to know the answer to this question. Actually, Britain has inherent strengths, the research base, the universities, and we can come back. Oh, I'm an inherent optimist on this. Let me sort of start with sort of, you know, the part of the world that I deal with very closely, which is the financial services world. If you go back to the period after the referendum, there were pretty dire predictions about the uh, consequences of Brexit for the financial services world, for the City of London. And I think, so far, those effects have been smaller. Now, that's not to say that I trivialise them, discount them and ignore them. Actually, quite the opposite. Actually, I remember saying the week after the referendum, this means we will have to work even harder to make sure we don't become isolationist. But I think it has actually created opportunities. I think we have protected and ensured that much of the market and much of the industry you know, remains here. Uh, and that's been important. So it's not a slow puncture? I don't think it is, no. I, I don't think it is. But I think we have to keep working at it very hard. I mean, it's been a very hard very large amount of work, but it was necessary. And again, my point is, I don't take a position on Brexit. We had to respond. You know, we had to do what we had to do at that point. That's our job. If you enjoy Prospect's podcasts and would like to consume more of its journalism, 
I'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As governor, obviously you have responsibility for financial stability too. Do you, do you not occasionally wake up at five o'clock in the morning and say, oh God, if we have Edinburgh reforms plus, then you know, we're heading into 2006, well, the, 7, 8. The good or bad news is I wake up at five o'clock every morning, so <laughs> as a matter of course. <laughs> so that one doesn't have... No, I mean, I think we have to be clear-sighted and careful about where we sort of go in terms of, of where regulation and where the, the structure goes. We do have a responsibility, I think, internationally. I, I think the IMF put it very well a few years ago in one of their um, reviews of the UK financial, UK financial stability when they said the UK's financial markets are a global public good. And they are. And therefore, we have a responsibility, which we always have to take very seriously to provide what's needed to maintain financial stability and we take that extremely seriously and I think the the post-Brexit landscape does give us opportunities I was said not everything you know about EU regulation was best suited to any national circumstances so we do have opportunities and I you know, support what the government is doing to you know to, to think through how to make best use of those opportunities that's the right thing to do but we also have a responsibility to maintain this global public good, to maintain financial stability, and particularly, therefore, to be part of international policy making and international standard setting. I spent a good part of my life involved in the work, for instance, of the Global Financial Stability Board. I chair one of its major standing committees because we have a big responsibility on that front. You know, the Bank of England has to pull its weight in that world. Mm-hmm. Communication in the era of X, I almost said Twitter, big challenges for the governor. You've been hammered. Do you think you got it wrong or you just 
quoted out of context? Is it an inevitable part of the job or is it a real problem communicating in public these days? I think the world is changing. I don't use social media, I should say, <laughs> deliberately. But think about dealing with the press. So there is a, I mean, you know well, there is a traditional world in which central banks communicated through a fairly limited number of outlets uh, in a fairly sort of technocratic and quite stylized way. We are masters of long sentences. You know, that's our, that's our preferred environment and habitat with lots of qualifying statements in them. And, you know, there's a famous, whether he actually said it or not, it doesn't, almost doesn't matter now, Alan Greenspan quote, that if you, if you think you understood what I've just said, you obviously didn't. And I think for all of us, you know, we, we, we've, had, you know we've had to very deliberately say we, we, we've got to, in a sense, broaden and change our communication. I think it's important that we talk more directly to the people we serve. Um, we communicate in ways that people feel they can understand what on earth we're talking about. I think that has presented challenges. It, it sometimes takes away the sort of the protection of sort of having highly nuanced, highly sort of qualified statements and forces a more direct form of communication. So I tell you in the bank, when we, to give you an example, when we do the monetary policy report and the financial stability report, we do various levels of communication from sort of you know, pictures and five words up to the old-fashioned long sentences. It's probably in our nature that we find the old-fashioned long sentences easier to construct than the, uh, the pictures we're absolutely useless at, I'm sure, actually. So it is a challenge, and I think, you know, I, I, yes, I, I mean, there are times when I do find it hard because there are times when you want to sort of talk quite directly. Do you think you got a bad rap, though, on wage restraint? Some serious people would say you did get a bad rap because you were right. Well, I, I think it's, e- it's easy sometimes to sit in your own sort of privacy and say... Well, I was right, wasn't I? Um, I said something about food prices. I was probably a bit right about that as well. But so you do think you were actually right? Well, no, actually, I, I don't in a way because you have to go back. You have to learn from these things. I mean, if we don't, if we don't learn, we don't. So what's the lesson? Well, you have to you have to think very hard and say, how can I say these things in ways that are? I hope people understand. With, by not resorting to the old-fashioned, let me give you a sort of a sentence that goes on for you know a paragraph. So I think that. Your finest hour. Um, so kind of you to have one. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I think it's, well, you've got three days to sort this out, which was a message both to the pension funds and actually the crocodiles. Yes. Well, it was meant to be very direct. I, 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 let me explain two important things about that. I mean, the first thing is that our intervention was a very limited temporary intervention to ensure financial stability. That was our job. We don't have another job. That was our job. It was a very big challenge. It was a challenge for all sorts of reasons. But one of the biggest challenges, you'll remember at the time, was that we'd ended quantitative easing. In fact, we were about to start quantitative tightening. We actually delayed the start of quantitative tightening. And here we were buying bonds again, buying gilts again. And we sat through, you know, several nights when we were sitting in this room with a whiteboard trying to work out what, what are we going to do, knowing that the, you know, we had a very tight deadline. And one of the considerations was, how can we do something and not make it look as if we're doing more QE? Because that's clearly running contrary to what we're seeking to do on monetary policy. 
in the end, we had to bite the bullet on that and say we're going to have to use communications because we don't have a, a tool that we could use that didn't involve buying government bonds. Yeah. Um, but it made it all the more, the reason I say that is that it made it all the more pressing and, and important that we, we, it was time limited and temporary uh, in that sense. Mm. Because to, to make it clear, this is a financial stability intervention. And I was very clear that you know, we, ha we have to be able to intervene for, you know, to, to pursue both of our core purposes, both monetary policy and financial stability, but we had to communicate it very clearly. So that, that, was, that was obviously pressing in my mind, that it had to be temporary and we had to make it clear. The second reason was, and here I was, I've said to you know, once, once or twice, you do have to sort of, in a sense, recognise that we do have quite a lot of inside information, that yeah, we were following, obviously, very closely where the industry was. Our markets, people were you know, talking to the industry almost constantly about where they were. And if you look at that, that, that week, that I was in, because in Washington, all that, that famous week well, in Washington, yeah. on, I think it was the Monday or Tuesday of that week, we made some changes to the scheme and in, in, increased the sort of the scope of what we bought to include index-linked gills. And the industry came back and said, look, in terms of getting us to the finish line, that's the game changer. And the numbers that we were, you know, we were getting from the industry suggested we were going to be able to do it by Friday. So the thing that I always say that, you know, I didn't say but I did know it was pretty high probability we were going to get to the line. Yeah. So I could say it, you know, it wasn't a complete, frankly, punt in the dark at that point. No, I don't think it was, but I think it was a wake-up call to a lot of But it was a wake-up call because it was a wake-up call to say, look, I'm sorry, but, you know, we're not going to be there. Please do not assume that we're just going to be there after the end of the, end of the weekend. So you've been a Bank of England lifer. Have you ever gone through a period like with a government that actually produces unfunded tax cuts, cuts out the independent assessment, and hopes. I mean, it was kind of totally irresponsible. It was a no. It was a very unusual. It was an unusual period. Can I just have a technical two minutes on the debt profile? We have to pay a lot more short-term debt back, mm. as I understand it, having looked at this. And from when I remember the days of Steady Eddie sorting out the uh, debt profile of this country, um, we had a lot more long-term debt. So. Easy question is, is this the legacy of QE, that our debt profile has actually deteriorated? Well, there's two ways of looking at our debt profile, one of which is to take QE out of the picture and say, what's the government's debt stock? Actually, the UK government's debt stock is on average longer than I think most other industrialised countries. The UK government, over, or UK government's plural over many years have actually lengthened the um, average debt stock. If you look at certainly the debt stock of the US, say, for instance, it's very, very much shorter than our, our debt stock. Uh, so in that sense, I don't think actually that, that point really holds. Now, what people do say, yes, but QE has tr transformed that in the sense that QE is an asset swap. And, you, you know, you've shortened the maturity of government debt for the part you've bought. And my response to that is, well, that's another reason why I think it's important that we adjust the debt, you know, our stock back to, uh, back to what I call a sort of steady state level. You were very critical of um, a group of parliamentarians who talked about uh, the country being addicted to QE. Um, yes. But would you not agree that QA overall did increase asset inflation and thereby inequality? during the period. There was, it was not a one-way bet, was it? Well, I think it's very interesting, actually, because we've done quite a bit of work on this, because we're obviously alert to this question has been raised with us quite, over the last decade or more quite a few times. And I would say a couple of things on this, or three things. First of all, actually, when you look at the 
aggregate measures of inequality in this country, they haven't moved in that period. Now, I do think that, that, however, I accept is not the end of the story. And so two other things I would say, one, and they sort of slightly go each way. I think what we have seen, and I don't think QE is, by the way, by any means the biggest part of the story. I think if you look at intergenerational equality in this country, I think it has, it has changed. Uh, and that's not just the QE story because it's been going on longer than that, actually. However, that's not the end of the story. Because one of the things that has also happened, and I think it's, it's a consequence of the support that was given to the economy throughout this period, is that one of the reasons that you don't see it in the overall measures of inequality is that the level of employment in the country has increased. So the level of, yeah, we have had much lower unemployment during the whole of this period since the, yeah, since the period after the financial crisis than we were forecasting almost throughout and if you look at certainly any, any chart on the sort of components of the change in real incomes in this country, it's actually the growth in employment that dominates, actually. It's not, it's not so much the growth in per capita uh, real income, it's the growth in the number of people in employment receiving income. Mm. And that is, that is A, good for, the, good for the country, it seems to me, and B, obviously, has, has been a counterweight in terms of the uh, measures of inequality. So it's a, it's a more complicated story. It's a big subject, I, I understand that. You, you are a, a lifer. Yes, 38 years. Do you think, do you have time to think about how you may want to shape this institution further? I do. When I actually came into the job, so I'm, well, I'm not sure it was quite before COVID started, but anyway, in those, those, those few months before, after I was announced and before I started and before COVID really took hold, I, I spent quite a lot of time thinking about this. I did, did and do have very you know, strong views on how the institution should change. I think we need to ensure that the bank culturally becomes what I might call a, a more open institution. I always use the word hierarchical slightly carefully because every institution has a hierarchy. But um, within that, um, you know, the, I wanted to break down and, and uh, you know, I'm determined and am I hope breaking down what I call some of the unnecessary sort of, in a sense, culture of place. So, What's on, that, like on tea my with first, the governor? Well, we do do that, yes. <laughs> I mean, the special, who gets to walk around the Bank of England garden? Yeah, well, I've got the door. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, so, yeah, I'll give you some examples. So on my first day, I said, look... There is this tradition here of calling the governor Mr. Governor. Probably the most polite thing you've called me during my career is Andrew, but will you please call me Andrew because, you know, it, it is unnecessary. My authority does not come from you calling me Mr. Governor. I actually do really try to spend a lot more time with all the staff. I, I laughed about your, thing, your tea because I do actually every month have co a coffee session with about 30 staff and they, they sign up for it. We don't choose them. I'm around the building quite a lot. I'm up in the canteen quite a lot probably more than I should be. And, and it's important. It, it, you know, for me, it's really important. You know, I, I'm not a mystical figure. Many of the staff have known me for a long time. Others are new. Um, and I think it's very important. And it's also important that we are an institution. And, and this is where you get into slightly sort of delicate territory. I said it in Parliament yesterday afternoon, actually, when I was at the Treasury Select Committee. We serve the country as a whole. We need to broadly, and I emphasise broadly, resemble the country we serve. This is not me being sort of, you know, in any sense sort of dictatorial, in any sense woke, whatever that word means. It's about saying we're a public institution serving the country. 
We need to resemble the country we serve. I spend a lot of time going around the country. It's probably the most enjoyable thing I do, actually, is, is going around the country with our agents. And that's important. It's important to me. Thinking about the future, is it time to have another look at the remit of, for the Bank of England regarding 2% and maybe tilting a bit more towards em- um, employment? Would you be open to that? Or do you think it's a too dangerous time? I don't think now is, is, is at all... Well, it's not just that now is not the time. I, I don't think those are really the answers. And I, when I look at this question about you know, the shocks that we face and you know, the, the fact that we, we might have more volatile inflation for a period of time if we're in this period of shocks, I don't think the answer to that question is 3% uh, in terms of the target or whatever number you want to pick. I was struck, actually. I've just been in the US on holiday, actually, because my, my wife's American. And I was just struck by how, many, how much more talk there is in the US now about this issue than I think there is here, actually, at the moment. But I do not think the answer is to change the target. What is the target? It's actually the representation of price stability. Mm-hmm. It's a translation of that into, a, into a, an objective and a number. Price stability, you know, to, to draw on something, I think, I think it's, again, it's Alan Greenspan who said it. You know, what's the definition of price stability? When, when people do not factor future inflation into their sort of everyday economic decisions of buying things and so on. That doesn't tell you exactly what the number is. There's good reasons why it's not zero, uh, because relative prices have to change and because deflation in some ways is worse than inflation to tackle. But it is a low enough number so that you sort of satisfy that sort of that principle that Alan Greenspan set out. And I think 2% has provided a very good quantification and practical sort of implementation of that. And I don't at the moment see a reason to move away from that. Last comment, the worst is over. Well, I hope so. But we're still very focused because until we're through it, until we've got inflation back to target... 2%. um, 2% and got it there sustainably, we won't be able to say that with any... I want to see it there. Mr. Governor Andrew Bailey, <laughs> thank you for the time. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Well, that's a great pleasure. Thanks a lot. A big thanks to my guest for this episode of the Prospect Podcast, Andrew Bailey. And to read more about my visit to the Bank of England, pick up a copy of this month's Prospect magazine. Hi, I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect. Thanks for downloading and listening to this episode of the Prospect Podcast. And while you're here, I wanted to let you know that we've also launched a brand new podcast series, Media Confidential. Presented by Alan Rosbridger and Lionel Barber, Media Confidential takes listeners on a deep dive behind the headlines. And with decades of editing world-renowned titles between them, Alan at The Guardian and Lionel at the FT, they take us beyond the clickbait to get to the truth of the story. This week, Alan and Lionel have an exclusive interview with Marty Barron, former editor of The Washington Post, on Marty's new book that's called Collision of Power, Trump, Bezos and The Washington Post. For an inside view of power in America, make sure that you give Media Confidential a listen. So listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 